UX Podcast is funded by James and Pat together with contributions and help we get from you, our listeners. You can contribute too, any amount you like, however often you'd like, or by donating your time. Just go to uxpodcast.com slash support. UX Podcast Episode 264. Hello everybody, welcome to UX Podcast, coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. We are your hosts, James Roy Lawson and Pad Axboom. Balancing business, technology, people and society. We've listeners in 199 countries and territories in the world, from Algeria to Ghana. It is 10 years since we first launched UX Podcast. And as part of celebrating that, we had a two-part interview with Don Norman. This is part two of our interview. And for those of you who haven't listened to part one, then Don Norman is probably the most famous um, in the US world for his book, The Design of Everyday Things. He has lived, well, you could say multiple lives as a university professor, industry executive, consultant, keynote speaker, and of course, author. And he's also been, also been an uh, electrical engineer, psychologist, uh, cognitive scientist, computer scientist, and yes, of course, a designer. He's the co-founder of the Nielsen Norman Group and founding director of the Design Lab at the University of California, San Diego. So here is the concluding part of our two-part interview. So if we historically, I mean, designers have been mid-level, as you say, which is why Papanik sort of got it wrong. But in taking more responsibilities and taking more leadership, we also have to accept that we are responsible to a greater extent. Do you think we're ready for that responsibility? Well, the word we, there are, <laughs> I mean, the people I interact with are ready. But that's a small percentage of the world's population of, first of all, of people, but even of designers. Industrial designers, for example, uh, make beautiful, wonderful objects. Um, they're trained well, but they don't understand people. And to have an industrial designer design something that is actually easy to use by people, that's a mistake. Second of all, there's a tendency to try to find the right mix of materials. And so you take this wonderful metal and you cover it with a light leather or something. Well, that means you can't redo it. You can't recycle it, you can't reuse it because they often make it so it's, it's either impossible or extremely difficult to separate the leather, which could be reused, and the metal, which could be reused. But if you can't separate it, then the whole thing has to be junked. And so a large amount of the problems we have are because we use such sophisticated materials we can make things smaller, lighter, stronger, more, more attractive, but they become junk and they go into these big piles of burning trash all around the world. So we have to change that. Now, there is a political way of doing it. And um, it's interesting that one a group, lots of people think that we simply must educate the, uh, the legislatures, uh, educate the people in power, and yeah, that's useful, but that's not going to do it. And I have some friends in the business who I really learned from, which say, look, 
one of them has worked a lot with large companies and trying to get them to be, you know, more environmentally friendly. He says, you can convince the, the top level in the companies and they might even have a new policy and change. But as soon as there's an economic downturn, they revert to their old system. Or as soon as um, the, the, they change, that they're no longer the CEOs, a new group of people coming in. The better way is make it in their best interest. So what he does is he tries to go and say, hey, go, let's go back, take a look at your factory. Look at that smoke coming out of the smokestack. That's money. You're, you're putting money into the air. If, and he shows them how they can save money by being you know, environmentally positive, but by reclaiming and making use of all the stuff that's being spit out. And the other thing is what, what the economists call externalities. That if I'm manufacturing things and uh, part of the waste product is, you know, dirty water and I just put it out into the streams or, or whatever, um, well, that's, that's not my, what happens to that is not my business. It's nothing to do with the manufacturing I'm doing. But that's a cost that's going to now cause harm to people downstream or to, to the government that has to clean up the water. And so why can't, why shouldn't the companies be responsible for the side effects of what they're doing? Because if they were responsible for it and had to pay for it, well, they would change their ways. If, they're if they would have to pay for the ability to take their old products and reuse them, they wouldn't make things that were so difficult to, to disassemble. And so a better way is to simply make people pay the real costs of what they're building. And, oh, will that, cost, will that raise the prices? Well, yes, it might. But you know what? The people are already paying for it, except they don't realize it. They're paying for it in taxes if the government is forced to do this. Um, Oh, they're paying it in their oh, health, for, for example. Like their health, yes. Water. And so, but if, and if they have to raise their prices, but everybody would have to raise their prices. But actually, no, because eventually they would learn methods of doing this that were more efficient and they wouldn't have to raise the prices. They can lower them again. I would love to hear Facebook have a conversation about externalities. <laughs> Well, that's interesting because the externalities that are easier to talk about are physical ones. Mm. That's right. And uh, Facebook has ones that are... So to be sympathetic to Facebook or in general the social media, these are difficult uh, decisions. Um, there are parts of things, there are parts of and policies of these companies that we think are just fundamentally wrong. But I know people who work at Facebook who are actually trying to see how to control the things that they're allowed to publish that are produced by other people. Facebook, YouTube, um, even TikTok. I mean, all the basic social media. It's, it's, it is difficult to draw the line between things that are really harmful and things that are simply somebody's opinion that I disagree with. So... There are things that I think that everybody agrees are wrong, but those are, that's the easy part. I think as well oh, with with the um, the very large organizations like Facebook, then they have a momentum 
which I think also uh, makes some of their issues and decisions challenging because like just like the world is spinning, you can't stop the world spinning. So some of these organizations, they may be people wanting to make change and trying to make change, but the organization has a momentum and it will take time to, to either slow it down or change yeah, the course. Yeah, this is clearly the case. Take a look at Google. Because um, it started off with noble aims and they had a really great search system, but they also had no income. Yeah, they tried, they tried to sell their search engine to companies. You could buy a Google search engine on a, in fact, on a dedicated machine and so on. But that wasn't enough income. And they, they truly accidentally discovered advertising medium. And um, they did their best to use advertising in a fair way. But then they got caught up in the fact that advertising was their major source of income. And... It's actually taught in business schools. The more you know about your customer, the better you can serve them. And so they started collecting more and more information about the customers to better help the advertisers and better make sure the correct advertiser is, is seen by you when you do your work, etc. And pretty soon, though, they were in, as you say, they got into this huge morass of ethical issues that um, even if they want to change it, it's very, very difficult. Which reminds me, there are two other topics that, that, I, that we have feel are very important to add to the design curriculum that are never talked about. One of them is systems, and I'll come back to that in a minute. And the other one is ethics. Almost every prof profession has, uh, has ethical statements, and some of them are extremely, uh, extremely informative. So, uh, I've been looking at the one done by the IEEE, it's the Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers, uh, and they have an ethics statement. It's, it's actually a book because they start off by saying, explaining how difficult ethics is because on the one hand, people say, well, there's right and there's wrong, and we simply teach people to do what's right and not what's wrong. Well, but different cultures have different opinions about what's right and what's wrong, and not everybody agrees. And you may have to respect that as you work around the world. And second of all, um, even the ones that we agree on are not so easy to put into practice. And, and it's especially where there's a, a murky line between whether something is ethical or not. And it may actually have to do a lot with the circumstances and how it's deployed, not with the action that you're doing. And so, but we feel that ethics is absolutely essential and it has not been taught to designers. And we also think it's so important we should not teach it as a course. It should be a part of everything you learn. It should be part of all the courses you're taking. Because if you turn it, teach it as a course, people think, oh, well, I can do all my work in ethics. Yeah, this is another thing. And then I'll look to see if I'm being ethical. But no, if you embed it within the courses that are being taught, then it gets, in, it gets right into the very fabric of what you are designing and what you are making. So ethics is going to be very important for the reasons that actually you've just mentioned. The other one is systems, and systems, so, it, it relates to this, that we cannot think of our product as isolated. Anything we do is part of a, of a complex system, and, they have, and the impacts are felt throughout that entire system. And so we must begin to understand the nature of systems. And, and how, well, how can we how can we start to understand it 
I mean, because of course we all, a lot of us maybe think we, we know systems or we work with a system, but what what's required to make that leap to understanding systems as a, as a um, on a larger scale? By the way, the notion of systems is artificial. That is, what, what we call a system is something that somebody decided to put a boundary around. But actually, in some sense, the world is a system. Everything is interconnected, and but you can't you can't address a problem that way. You do have to figure out what is important, and put the boundary around it. And the rest you just can't handle. But actually, it also means that different people and different components of what you are doing might actually draw the lines of the system differently. But um, the answer to your question is very simple. I don't know the answer. But, well, I don't know the answer to everything, but I do know the questions. And so one of the things mm-hmm. we we're doing, and the reason it's taking us a year or two years or three years to do this, is um, we, we have divided up into a bunch of what we call working groups on different topics. And right now we have seven, but we're, we're going, we think we're going up to about 20, but it may be, we don't know as we go through because... Um, well, a good example is we decided that we had to have a systems group. And so what we did is we appointed uh, two very really good people in systems. But, and their job is now to appoint other members of their group. And their job is to spend a year helping to answer the question that I said I can't answer, but I've asked some experts to work on that for a year. But they also said, you know, there is uh, sustainability. That's a systems problem. But it isn't the same as the one we're looking at. So you actually need to have a different working group on sustainability and on environmental impact, climate, you know, climate change. That should be another working group. Uh, and so uh, we will discover as we go along that, that our choice of working groups may be wrong. Some may be demolished. Some of them may should be combined with each other. And some of them will split off into several working groups. See, when I've talked to the other groups, the, the youth, the group that we've gotten most learnings from is computer science, which has every 10 years, they have this major group that meets to revise the curriculum recommendations. And that, that takes two or three years. And, um, and they, uh, they had lots of issues about getting started and how to know who to bring together and so on. But their job is a lot easier than ours because even the very first time they've done it, they're now doing their third 10-year cycle. The very first time, um, pretty, pretty, pretty much agreement across the world what computer science was and wasn't. Now, that has changed over time. For example, the field of design, of, which is in computer science, is human-computer interaction. That wasn't part of the early initiatives. It only came out uh, in the second one because nobody thought that was part of computer science. But today they do. Today, so human-computer interaction is a fundamental part. And in fact, in developing their recommendations, they have a set of, of requirements. Everyone who's in computer science ought to know these topics. And these other topics are optional because they're more specialized. And interestingly, the human-computer interaction one is now considered one of the required topics. Mm. But... Um, mm. But the field was better structured than our field. Design is not well structured. We don't. There's so many different versions of design, and so many different new things coming in that uh, there are design schools in the world that are actually working on this and developing this. And 
we're trying to bring in, make sure we have people from those schools with us. But the more traditional design schools that are still part of, say, um, um, of, of art and of architecture, uh, they're, not, they, they're not interested in change. They feel they're doing a fine job, thank you very much. And personally, they, a lot of them are doing a fine job of, of training traditional designers, and there still is a need for those things. But when we're trying to expand, we don't really know the answers. In mm. fact, I'm not even sure we know all the correct questions. So my, my belief is this is going to be a long process and that we're going to produce something that I hope will be of great value. And if we follow the computer science tradition, which I think is an excellent one, 10 years after we start at this one, so maybe in 2030, there should be another initiative, which, which will be easier because I'll have this one to, go, to build on but they'll have to change what, what that new initiative does because the world will have changed by 2030. I have one final question. I don't know if James has one as well, but so if I'm a designer listening to this episode and you've totally sold me, Dom, uh, I want to do it differently. I don't just want to work with efficiency and making things faster and cheaper. I, I want to work on these broader issues. Where do I start? Is there some place I can start reading? Is there a book you'd recommend? Anything like that? That's what I ought to do. Um, I haven't done that. So <clears throat> that's a really good question. Uh, but the problem is, and I've been reading a tremendous number of books, and what I really ought to do is I ought to sit down and say, let me go through the books and see which ones are really recommended so that you don't have to read as many as I've been doing. And, um, and I haven't done that. So I really can't give you a recommendation. Um, you know, you can start by reading our website. And what, I'm, what we've tried to do in our website, the, the future of design education.com, no, it's .org, future of design education.org, I think. <laughs> um, we, we also have decided that we, why not? We have 700 people, we're not using them all. A lot of them have good ideas, so we've, we've started an essay series where we ask people to write short essays, two, three, four pages not longer than 10 because we it should be so somebody can read it quickly and second of all you might want to publish this essay in a formal journal and so we want this to be so short that this publication doesn't prevent you from expanding the ideas in a journal um, and so that will become a very valuable source and we're also listing papers that you want to be reading by that already exist um, it's just started if you look at the essays today there are only three of them uh, and they're not they're not very general yet. Uh, we've just put together an editorial meeting, an editorial group, but <laughs> we haven't managed to schedule the first meeting because uh, we have people in New Zealand and people in, not in Sweden, but certainly in, in you know, we actually have somebody in Sweden. So we have people all around the world. And as you know, the time zone problem makes it really, really difficult to schedule them. But so it's new, but this is one of the things we're hoping to do is to bring people some simple reading. But I actually like your idea that I should sit down and say, okay, what are the books that I have found useful and readable that can help say where I can begin? I think it would be an excellent list to provide, Don. Um, and I think it would create a lot of value um, very quickly for a lot of people. Yeah, it's a long list. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't want it to be a long list, but if I actually think about the books I've been reading and the ones that I haven't gotten to yet, but other people have strongly recommended, it's there's mm-hmm. a lot of books there. Thank you so much for being with us, Don. As always, you're providing tremendous value. Well, I hope so. I mean, I've lived a long time and I've accomplished. I'm very proud of it, what I've accomplished, which is mainly, by the way, my students and my books. Uh, but I'm 85 years old right now. And I'd say, okay, I have one last attempt to do something. And I want that thing to be something that actually makes for a better world. And that's why I'm devoting so much time to this effort. So thank you for having me. I I actually enjoyed this kind of conversation very much. And you're very good at it, both of you. Thank you. Thank you, Don. And as I, I really, I really hope that you succeed in making a difference with this. Um, this well, you said it your last chance to make a big difference, but I mean, maybe you'll have more chances. You, I know you're in your third yeah. retirement at yeah. least already, so <laughs> um, you can retire again after this one. And, um, oh, okay. yeah. yeah, I mean, actually, because I have lots of friends who are in their 90s or even late 90s, and they're still active and still giving talks and still publishing. We'll see. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. So trying to unpack everything that we've talked to Don about across these two episodes, it's, it's, it's a lot. And I feel like I'm going to have myself listen back to these two episodes regularly because I think they're so central to what design is and where we want to be and where we want to go from here. Uh, because... I think it's it's important to acknowledge that, that Don, perhaps, he's not the first one to have these ideas. We've heard them from others. Uh, and, and these notions about colonization, uh, I mean, more marginalized and ignored communities have been talking about this, of course, for decades, because that's their, it's been their experience, their life. And But the difference now is that we've, we're reaching a tipping point where enough people in power are beginning to listen and, and to those who have been unlistened to for too long. And I think what Don is showing that he, he regularly, both through the values he's communicating and, and now and how he's acting, how important it is to always be prepared to change perspective and abandon your previous preconceptions and not be stuck in a loop, as is the case with many people. Yeah, and I think something which struck me around this is and I wrote a little bit about this in our backstage newsletter that Don like you said he's 85 years old and he has a lot of knowledge and experience and he's his sense of scale of time Mm. is very different to to us I mean he's he's lived almost twice as long as me and you Pat and um, that that length of time gives you an opportunity to to think about things, reflect on things. You can talk about 10 years ago or 20 years ago in a different way to, to when you're in your, your 20s and so on. Um, and we, I know that me and you've prepared uh, possibly more than usual for, for this interview with Don. And he still managed to answer pretty much every single question we thought would be interesting to ask him mm. in his first opening, like, 12-minute yeah. um, you know, <laughs> section of, of speaking, um, mm. which he picked on, up on himself mm. that... Um, that We'd pretty much done that. We ran out. We ran out of questions, but then we didn't because there there, didn't. there was so much more to actually go into. Yeah, uh, but um, but no, it's um, yeah, he's not the first, but um, and he won't be the last. Um, but he does have a, I think a, a 
good and healthy way of well, repackaging it, uh, reflecting on it, mm. and communicating it again, and getting us to to look up look upon ourselves, I guess. and making it easier to understand. And I think that's what Don does: is he he is able to communicate in words that a lot of people can take to heart. I mean, I myself, I don't think I've reflected maybe enough about the times when we've probably been uh, having colonizing-like behavior in, in design work mm -hmm. we do. Um, I mean, you could say dominating is another word you might be able to use Exactly. for a similar thing. It's, it's, it's easy mm. to dominate mm. in many situations in our work. It really is, and, uh, and acting like this savior-type uh, person. Um, yeah, Something that really, uh, listening back to the first part, I, was something that struck me, What the point he's making about designers aren't yet in that position to make real change, but we are nevertheless impacting change. And so for me, that makes us really, really powerful, but with a, without enough power to avoid harming. And that's scary. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like you're powerful, you don't know it, or you're powerful, but not powerful enough. Mm. It's almost, it's a kind of a combination yeah. of, of both. Yeah. Man, but also, I mean, acknowledging that these things, they take time. Change takes time. It's what you've been alluding to now as well, as we've been talking about Don's age, how long it takes. He's been aware of many of these things. He started, started writing about this. It, it, it sounds like something new. He started writing about it more than 10 years ago. <laughs> Uh, but yeah. for for everyone to change, and that he, he, he is something he talks about as well, is that it's not that we will change design education over a year, but it's, it's, it's that new kinds of designers will come out slowly, allowing for adjustments to occur incrementally, if you will. <laughs> yeah, mm. and, I, and mm. I brought up the point there about mm. the incrementalism mm. and and whether we, how open we need to be as designers about our like long-term plan. and. You know, we've we've discussed the the fact that politicians need to be educated and and more aware of digital design and so on. Mm. But Don himself said, oh, it's useful, but it's not going to be enough." Mm. Um, which is which is interesting um, that we're talking about you know, periods of time that stretch beyond governments, um, and that opens up a whole load of interesting questions. Uh, not not only to do with ethics statements, um, but you know, being open about our long-term goals as a design community. Mm. And, you know, imagine if we do actually get ourselves organized enough to be a community working together, then, you know, the the things that are required from us to make sure that isn't misused. Exactly. And something that I, I think about when you say that is that this this thing about him saying that I, I think we've talked about it in the past as well it's good that we don't know anything designers not knowing knowing anything is a virtue not knowing anything of course is is pushing it to the extreme but we we obviously can't know anything but we are interested in the whole system which means that we need to be able to be more open about the fact that we don't know enough to make the right decisions and we always need to bring in the people who know the stuff who who live it who breathe it the people who actually we are affecting. Yeah, I mean, we've. Um, uh, I'd, I'd love the. Um, I really did like the the um, professional tennis player mm. analogy that Don used. Um, I mean, we do have the argument about everyone's a designer mm. or isn't everyone a designer, but um, the, the tennis one was good. Um, and he even followed up, did in the interview himself, almost following the same 
doctor in that um i don't know the answer to everything but i do know the questions yeah don himself you know saying i'm Mm. I'm not you know the ultimate professional Mm. these other professionals that know that uh, experts sorry that know more about these things um we've we've mentioned um both comb-shaped and t-shaped um individuals um over the years uh, I did a quick check and we've actually, well, at least one time we talked about it in relation to accessibility, it was with um, Laura Kalbag, but, um, but actually in episode, well, one, 10 years ago, we, um, we talked about um, <laughs> that is amazing. T-shaped designers that, you know, it's, it's important to, exactly what we said with Don, that you, you need to be aware of a lot of stuff and know when to call in anyone else. And that, that awareness is, is a crucial aspect mm. of, of what we do. Yeah. But also how how realizing that it benefits us if everyone is a designer, because if you know a little design, you will appreciate the skills of a professional designer more. So it'll be easier to talk about. It'll be easier to communicate. And perhaps that is even how we will uh, get the power to actually, I don't know, create less negative impact. <laughs> Get the power? You're after the power now, Pat. Yeah, no, but what I was saying before was that we didn't have enough power to not, yeah. not impact negatively, but we need that power to actually say that we need to bring in these people to avoid harming. Mm. And that's, I think I start to really understand is the whole point about systems and ethics. Because mm. towards the end of the interview, that Don says that um, systems, um, understanding well, systems thinking and then um, generally ethics are two things that we have to include in, in design education or yeah. what designers understand. Um, and it kind of makes sense, um, especially with the systems thing that you're saying, that we, we need to, we do interact with uh, multiple, um, we, our impact goes beyond just an interface yeah. or a digital product. Um, and uh, understanding how all these things potentially are interconnected or are interconnected um, is um, is a skill that needs to be um, developed. Mm. And what Don, and what Don says is that uh, ethics uh, shouldn't be taught as a course, but you should embed it in everything that is being taught. Uh, which, of course, when I when I hear that, it's because I give a course in ethics at a design school, but. Uh, uh, the point I make in that course as well is that now you know this, now you need to embed it in your work, mm-hmm. in your everyday work. And that's, and that is the point. Uh, yeah. Cause he's not saying that we're not saying mm-hmm. that, um, an ethics module, mm-hmm. um, is, is wrong in itself. Mm-hmm. It's more that all the other modules also need to include ethics, yeah. which means that you need to learn it really early on to be able to then integrate it into everything. And then your role as someone who's teaching ethics courses, mm. y- you have to then take the responsibility to um, influence and communicate with the people teaching the other modules or even organizing the, the whole course exactly. to make sure that it's included. Exactly. Now now we're doing kind of like micro solutions yeah. <laughs> for, for just that course, whereas it's, it mm. ties in though with Don's yeah. work with creating a, um, a design, um, well, the future design education where there's a, a 10 year cycle of, of deciding what is including it mm. or not. This is, this is related, but we're doing, we're talking now about maybe a grassroots level. It makes me think that all teachers should attend each other's courses. There's so much work to be done. here. <laughs> yeah. The responsibility yeah. of, of um, what we teach um, or what we share mm. 
when are you exploring when are you exploring thinking and when are you actually teaching right because I mean there's maybe this is a completely different show but yeah. but that thing about when we both me and you do a lot of um, exploratively explorative thinking especially during the podcast we 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 reflect like now on interviews we've had and we you know we work through our thoughts and reflect on what we've just listened to and and heard <clears throat> and that in itself is to a, it's not teaching mm. but we're sharing our early ideas yeah exactly and i think that's what's what's really powerful about us having done this 10 years is our ability like when we did a a live show for for many hours <laughs> the other week just reflect back on what we were talking about 10 years ago but Don can do so much more of that. Uh, and what he's saying as well, what he's ending on, and, well, we're doing this now, but this is one initiative, and in 2030, there should be another initiative. So, so he's already preparing for, for being wrong. He's preparing for being wrong now. He's changing it well, now. Well, not just being wrong, Pat, mm. but also preparing for the fact that the world mm. will change. Oh, exactly. That's what, yeah, so, that's so, what I'm So being, being right now doesn't necessarily, <clears throat> necessarily mean you're going to be right in the future mm. because things don't stay still exactly and i think that's always so important to acknowledge as a designer that my the thing i do now it's not not fixed in time there it's always uh, related to everything that's going on around it and it will probably not work as well over time mm-hmm. that's a oh, final thought maybe from me was just tying it back to what you said at the start of this um no reflective part of the show um about colonization um think again the whole usefulness of working with hypotheses mm. and you know I'm a, I'm a big fan of doing it but I've, I've, I love the healthy aspect of it that it allows you to keep on reflecting on what it is your um, you think and why you think it mm. and what you expect your impact to be when you make the changes you're planning um, so I I'm still a big believer in we, we all should work uh, much tighter with um, Hypothesis, yeah. both personally, you know, if you, or oh, exactly, yes. But mm. it doesn't. It doesn't have to be a formal. Mm. You don't have to kind of like implement safe or mm. whatever mm. you know method in your organization. I think you, as an individual designer, can work with hypotheses much better. And for me, that ties in definitely with ethics. The whole part of ethics is that taking that time for reflection and what that what the hypothesis could mean going forward. Uh, mm. That time, even though we say that we work with hypotheses isn't always made available, and that's a problem. So if you've listened to this episode before episode 263, which is part one um, of this latest interview with Don Norman, then obviously you need to go back and listen to that. Um, I guess it still works, so listen to them in reverse order. You're not going to kind of like, you know, miss out too much, I don't think. But um, if you have written, listened to these in the order um, that we thought you might, 263, 264, then our recommended listening is the recent episodes 261 and 262. I'm getting very critical of all these numbers, Per. Um, but 261 was our t- chat to Scott Birkin, and 262 was our um, conversation with three um, wonderful women in our design industry, um, Kim Goodwin, Kate Rutter and Pamela Pavczak. And they tie in, I think, nicely with our conversation with Don. Yeah, you're right. But I'm actually going to go back myself and listen to episode one, now that you mentioned it, and see what we said about T-shaped designers. <laughs> yeah, that actually, I might do that too. 
And if you can spare a little bit of your time, then join our little community of volunteers. We're always looking for help with transcripts and publishing. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. James, I was just reminiscing about the beautiful herb garden I had when I was growing up. The beautiful herb garden you had? Yeah, good times. Oh.